0: This is Phil Cly, and you're listening to Storybound. This is from my new novel, Missionaries, from the character of Lisette in 2015.
1: Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. So, welcome to the final episode of the season. Uh, but if you do listen after the credits, you'll get to hear some cool news on the way and a bonus story told by me. And in just a bit, you'll get to hear Phil Cly read a story from his debut novel, Missionaries, with an original musical score from our resident mixer, Tim Carplus.
0: It didn't begin with the bombings, by which I mean, Kabul was no longer Kabul well before then. There used to be thousands of us Westerners, mostly military and contractors, but also aid workers, missionaries, adventurers, diplomats, and journalists like myself, trying to make our mark or our fortune in the good war, Afghanistan, as opposed to the dumb war, Iraq. The money we brought kept things kicking in our Kabul, the Westerners' Kabul, the city within the city that was unaffordable or just plain off-limits to ordinary Afghans. People called it the kabubble. And the kabubble meant imported steaks at Boccaccio, bootleg Heinekens on Flower Street, and rooftop parties overlooking the lights that crawl up the sides of the mountains around the city at night. It meant a place you could let your hair down, drink alcohol, and tell strangers the lies you told yourself about why you were there, what you were doing, and what a difference you were making. By 2015, those days were long gone. Troop levels down from a peak of over 100,000 to less than 10,000. And for all the cheerleading for a military exit I've heard from self-righteous European aid workers and 22-year-old journalists seeking to give voice to the Afghan people, I couldn't help noticing that as the American military left, those folks' numbers thinned out too. He didn't see as many correspondents or NGO administrators or even heavily armed white dudes in cargo pants on Street 15 those days. The tide has turned, Obama had told us in 2012, indeed. Then, early morning, early August, the sound of an explosion. We hear the boom in the office, the window frames rattle and Asif. One of my Afghan colleagues looks at me and says, "Hopefully." It's 8.30, I haven't had my coffee yet, and neither of us is eager to run out to a bomb site and try and count dead and injured. We both run up the stairs to the roof. Just a few years prior, there would have been a gaggle of photographers and cameramen already there, filming black smoke, placing bets on what got hit. To the extent that people cared at all, they cared then. In 2015, there's a lot less interest in random explosions in Kabul. The offices are depleted, and when we get to the roof, it's just Omar languidly snapping photographs and sucking on the tiniest nub of a cigarette. I'm not sure of Omar's exact age. He was a young boy during 9-11. He's probably barely in his 20s, but he affects a hard-bitten cynicism. Big, maybe even big, big, he says. But early for too much people traffic, so I guess. He surveys the scene with an expert eye. This is how Omar talks when sober. Drunk? I've seen him cry about these things and speak idealistically about the work he does bringing his country's suffering to the world's attention. It tends to make everyone around him embarrassed. After calling his relatives and confirming that everyone's all right, Asif says he'll head down to the site. Since I figure Bob will want me to write the snap, I go downstairs, call the military press office, They confirm there's been no controlled debt, but they can't confirm an explosion, so I write, explosion sounds in Afghan capital, plume of smoke seen rising. I read it over once, twice, press send. Not a lot of information, but two minutes later, while I'm working on my second paragraph for the urgent, Bob swings by from the back office with a cup of coffee and says, You beat the AP by two seconds. He places the coffee in front of me, my reward. I take a sip. Finish off the last paragraph. It's clocking in at 125 words and send it. Four minutes from start to finish. Good enough. Now, the work begins. Asif's already heading to the scene. He's got a motorcycle, which means he's way better at getting through Kabul traffic than those of us relying on taxis or the agency car. Bob tasks me to write, Denise to work the phones. Denise is 23 and plain-looking, but she's so much younger than I am that even when we're together, and even though I know I cut a striking figure when I want to and she ties headscarves like a homeless bag lady, she turns heads. She's catnip to a certain kind of guy, the kind of guy who's not quite sure his time in Afghanistan has proved his manhood and, besides, is secretly terrified of death and needs to work that anxiety out by fucking the young. Terror sex. That's what my friend Cynthia calls it, and both of us are a little uneasy that terror sex doesn't hold as much appeal for us as it used to. I want to be at least as alive as the vulgar, we'll say, quoting Frank O'Hara. But we're not that alive anymore, and not even really sure we want to be. After all, we hold the Denises of the world, and our younger selves, and the men who fuck them, in contempt. Can we say this is rare? Denise asks, a little tentative. When was the last one? Bob's style of instruction is Socratic. Three weeks, I say. Does that count as rare? says Bob. For a war zone? says Denise. Kabul's not a war zone, I say. Last bombing killed five people. How many dead would it take to make Kabul's unsafe? Point of comparison is, Kabul's murder rate worse than New Orleans, says Denise. Is New Orleans safe? Asif calls in. The bomb went off near the interior ministry, or possibly beside the interior ministry. The police aren't letting him in, but he's convinced a storekeeper to let him onto his roof. He's got Omar taking shots of the damage. Hopefully, he'll get something artful, something beautiful enough to get picked up and extend the reach of the violence, make some dent on the public mind. The great democratic public relies on the intrepid veracity of the free press to cut past the political rhetoric with hard-hitting facts so they can make informed decisions, which, 15 years into this war, hasn't happened yet, but hey, maybe could, someday. Denise gets a contact at the local hospital to confirm seven dead, but we don't know who the dead are, and that matters. If they're Afghan forces, ISAF will spin this as a good news story, Afghans stepping up and courageously defending their country, protecting it from greater harm. If the bomb went off somewhere inside the Interior Ministry, though, that will make the Kabul administration seem weak, hopelessly compromised. If it's a civilian target, well, it'll be another data point in the shift the Taliban has taken to kill innocent Afghans. The Afghan government will issue a statement vaguely laying the blame on Pakistan. The U.S. military will say it shows the Taliban's increasing desperation, whatever that means. Bob turns his computer and shows me a Twitter conversation between ISAF Media and the Taliban. The outcome is inevitable. Question is how much longer will terrorists put innocent Afghans in harm's way? Reads the ISAF tweet. And a self-appointed Taliban spokesman tweeting back, You have been putting them in harm's way the past ten years. Raised whole villages. Worthless, I say. I look at my watch. I want to get to the site before the police have cleaned everything up. In time to get some color. A newly orphaned child wailing and looking around helplessly for her parents the green pickup truck used to bring the wounded to the hospital. The shattered glass and ruined fruit stalls, businesses, livelihoods. Lives. Omar's photos will help. Not just the ones we'll use, but Omar's always good at taking a few purely documentary shots so we can run down mundane details that don't always do so much in a photo, but pop in a story. Like the elderly Pashtun man in the last bombing, who whose blood running down his arms held his coat over the corpse of a woman to protect her modesty. The key is finding a detail that might make someone, some reader, looking over the morning paper, drinking coffee, eating a hard boiled egg, about to rush to work, to make that person stop and care. It's difficult, in part because these days, I find it hard to get those details to even make me care. When I first came here, I was full of rage at the indifference most people back home showed to the deaths of Afghans. All these human beings suffering, dying, and fighting with unbelievable courage to live in this brutal country, courage that can inspire you for at least a few years. It's a feeling I doubt I'll ever get back. These days, the thought will sometimes run through my head as I lie in bed trying to sleep. I am broken. I am broken. And I do not know how I will ever fix this hole I've carved into my soul. And then I hear the much larger sound of the second bomb.
1: you are listening to storybound and now for a short break and now we return from our break
0: bombings in a day is new. New is bad. But for the moment, I have work to distract me. The AP beats me on the urgent. Suicide bombing in Cartier-Mamouri. As I'm grabbing my bag, Asias calls and I put him on the speaker. Just civilians, he says from the site of the first bombing. Broken glass everywhere, shops and houses, no possible military target. He has Wahidullah at the health ministry confirming 15 dead and possibly up to 300 injured. Police Chief Rahimi confirming they're all civilians. I'm nervous. Kabul has felt increasingly dangerous the past year and a half, since the attack on La Taverna de Liban, since the Swedish reporter shot randomly in the street, since the suicide bombing at the Christian daycare, since the attack on the Serena Hotel, since the two Finns shot in broad daylight, since the Cure hospital attack. But I'm smiling as I exit the door. Moments like these, they're the best part of the job. The part where something awful happens, and I get assigned to do something about it. To write the story, to sort through the chaos and find narrative. Sure, it's not giving blood, picking up the bodies, or hunting down the killers. And maybe those lines we recite about journalists writing the first draft of history, maybe those lines will rub the wrong way after you've filed the story. You've sent your work out into the void enough times with only the smallest hope that anybody will care. It even becomes funny when a colleague sends you an email from Washington tell you, you know, I got back from Afghanistan only a month ago, and already I catch myself talking about the war as if it's not still happening. And you think, what am I doing here? But before I file, when I'm talking to survivors, when I'm gathering the pieces, and finally when I'm writing, when I'm piecing... Together, the awful parts into some kind of whole that readers can accept and digest. I'm a believer. Doing something means believing in it, it means faith. So when horror happens, I don't just have to endure it the way most people here do. I get to act. I arrive at the second blast site where there are still dead in the street, and two shrapnel-riddled cars. Both of them have those back-window stickers so popular here. One reads, Don't cry, girls. I will be back. And the other, Don't drink. It is sin. Complete with an image of a champagne bottle spilling alcohol onto, oddly, Che Guevara's face. I take photos of the cars, of a can of incense on a chain still smoking. A woman holding a baby sees me and begins yelling, so I put my phone on record as she shouts. I can't always understand what interviewees are saying, especially when they're upset, but I can always play it for Asif later. I was feeding my baby, she eventually tells me, after she's calmed down a bit. Her baby is covered in bandages. I saw the roof fall in on me and fell unconscious. Then I heard my husband shouting over and over. He came to me. I was bleeding from my face, my hands, and my shoulders. My brother-in-law lost both of his eyes. My son. She held up the baby so I could see the injuries. Though he was so swaddled in bandages, it was hard to tell. The mother herself looked young with a pretty face still covered in grime and dried blood. My husband, he was saying, he was shouting, where are the others? My father, my father. He was bleeding from the top of his head. He was wild. He did not know where he was. We've lost everything. Later in the day, we'll get the official count for the police bombing. 57 casualties, 28 killed, 29 injured. Add that to this, and we haven't had so much death in one day since the Asura bombing four years ago. So this is different. This is dangerous. This is news. I should be excited. But midway through the interviews, I realize I'm running out of steam. Or maybe I'm running out of fucks. Afghanistan has a way of leaching those out of you, which is why every wannabe war correspondent adopts an attitude of casual cynicism well before they've earned it. It's our version of the military veteran's thousand-yard stare. And I'm looking around nervously, worried about an attack on first responders, worried that I'm putting myself at risk, which is not where my head should be. I push those feelings away and decide, fuck it. I'll fight the Kabul traffic and head to the first blast site, too. Double the risk, you coward. When I get there, I see this was a much larger blast. The bomb has blown in storefronts, leaving the concrete posts and steel beams and metal railings behind, bearing the architectural bones of the market. Walking through a city after a bombing is like coming upon the decayed body of an animal in the woods. Enough has been destroyed that you can see the rib cage, a bit of skull and jawbone poking through the long, delicate metatarsals of the feet. Enough hints to imagine for yourself the whole skeleton that once structured life. I walk through the crater. See the edges come up to my waist. Beyond the crater, there's a man sweeping glass and rubble out of a ruined store. I see a young man searching for valuables in the rubble. And then, shadowed in a doorway, a toddler beams at the world, a chunk of rubble in her fat hand raised high. She brings it down on a battered piece of metal, making a loud clanging noise. Ah. She says, delighted and she strikes the metal again and again and starts laughing. I take out my camera and photograph her joy. As the sun's going down, I head back to the office. Everybody is there, Denise typing away, Omar sifting through photos, Asif and Bob reading transcripts of interviews with Taliban leaders. I file around 9.40, scroll through my photos from the day, log into Facebook where journalists who've left the country are posting news of the blast with posts like, I've been there so many times. Terrible to see. More violence in my beautiful Kabul. Two years ago, I did an interview just around the corner from where this bomb... I pull up the photo of the little girl. The happy toddler with a piece of metal in her hand. The girl's face is in focus, well lit, and the background is a nicely unfocused blur. Though you can see the devastation clearly enough. I save it to a folder labeled Memories. Not much later, around 10, we hear a third explosion. You've got to be fucking kidding me, says Bob. That was big, Omar said. Far away, but big. There's a moment of silence. We're tired. We're all tired. Didn't NDS pick up a couple of DICE recruiters yesterday, Denise says quietly. The Islamic State, says Bob. Nah, I don't think so. You don't go from base-level recruiting to three linked attacks in a day. I call the military press office, and they're in the dark about the blast as well. We're not giving out any information at this time, says Staff Sergeant Jonathan Burgett. But Asif gets a source telling us there's been a big blast at the gate of Camp Integrity. Everybody turns to me. Integrity is run by Blackwater, right? asks Bob. They call themselves Academy now, I say. Whatever, says Bob. You fucked half the mercenaries in Kabul. You've got to have a source. The room goes quiet. Nobody likes that I've dated contractors. Two, to be specific. The one was more serious and the other was more casual fucking. It's none of their business. None of anybody's business. But it got around. Even military folks tend to hold mercenaries in contempt. And then Bob realizes before I do that maybe some ex of mine is dead, killed in the explosion. I'm sure all the Blackwater guys are fine, he says. They subcontract the outer ring of security to Afghans, I say. Bob looks disappointed. Of course they do, he says. Those fucking cockroaches, with their fucking high speed gear and their cool guy shades and their wizard beards. So how much are they getting paid to have Afghans take the risks for them? At least it's not civilians, Denise says. You know, they finally sent us the Blackwater guys in the Nisor Square Massacre. Life for Slatin. The other guy's got, I think, thirty years. I ignore them, mostly. But it occurs to me that I could dial Diego's phone number. At least the number I think is still his if he's still in country or in Kabul. More likely he's out doing counter-narcotics work in God knows where, or on one of his R&Rs in the backwoods of Chile, drinking mate and pretending not to be out of his goddamn mind. I'm not a normal person anymore, Liz, he told me once, and I don't want to be. I pull out my phone. We hadn't closed things off in any real way, we just slowly stopped talking. He was always off in a different country anyway, doing work he claimed was like James Bond, but boring. When I'm reporting on something like this, something that matters makes it easier if I can become nothing more than a pane of glass, the medium through which people can look out the windows of their normal lives and see what's happening over here. Diego complicates things, raises up emotional turbulence, changes the weights and measures of what I think is important and worth telling. But if he's in country, he'll know something. I dial his number. The phone rings and rings, but he doesn't answer, and I'm not sure if I'm disappointed or happy or worried. I end up heading to Integrity on the back of Omar's motorcycle, cold wind whipping my headscarf as we head out the base.
1: You are listening to Storybound, and now for a short break. And now we return from our break.
0: Camp Integrity. Sometimes I'm not sure if the US government is just trolling us when they name these things. What else would you name a giant 435,600 square foot compound run by the most notorious mercenary outfit of the modern wars? Blackwater, Z, Paravant, Academy. They secured a $750 million contract in 2012 for information related to the counter drug effort in Afghanistan, and they've been running integrity ever since. When we were dating, I once asked Diego how the drug effort was going. He pulled out an iPad and showed me a graph tracking opium production against the price of wheat over the past 10 years. When the price of wheat was high, opium production went down. When the price of wheat was low, opium production went up. Along the graph were little markers indicating various points at which the U.S. launched multi-billion dollar counter-narcotics efforts. They didn't seem to have had the slightest effect on overall production. So what's the point of what you do? I asked him. He shrugged. We affect things on the margins. What kind of narcissistic asshole would think he could do more than that? But hey, there are lives in those margins. I rolled my eyes. You ever known a heroin addict? He asked. I mean, have you ever seen it? Sure. That shit is pure evil, Liz. Pure evil. No lie. And Blackwater pays well, I said. It's Academy now, he said, and sighed. Nobody ever asks a homicide detective if they're going to end murder. The question isn't whether we can win. It's whether it'll be worse if we stop fighting. Afghan police stop us as we approach the blast site. There are a couple of NDS pickup trucks, two unmarked white vans, an MRAP in Overwatch, a lot of people standing around with guns, a few interested onlookers. Inside the ring of police, I can make out some damaged blast walls, but can't actually see much else. No good shot, Omar says, but I can work magic. He gets off the bike and starts walking the perimeter. I head into the crowd and ask people what happened. A couple of people give me the same story. One big boom, then some smaller booms, maybe grenades, and small arms fire. An assault, not just a suicide bombing. Dead bodies, I ask. Heads nod yes. I'm exhausted, and though this should be exciting, I don't care. Three bombings in one day. Does it mean anything? Yes, no, who knows? I call Diego again. This time, he picks up. What do you expect me to tell you, Liz? He answers, sounding frustrated and hostile. That you're okay, I say. Oh, he says softly. I'm okay. Around me, the crowd is thinning. There's little more to see here, little point even to having come. Omar will get decent shots, but nothing to beat his work from the earlier bombings. Those are the photos that will run. Well then, he says. He sounds tired or sad. There's something there. Thanks for thinking of me. Diego. What? You want a quote? I could do it off the record. How's this? I hear him shuffling through papers. Human lives are brief and trivial. Yesterday a blob of semen, tomorrow embalming fluid. Ash. Lovely. It's Marcus Aurelius, seriously. He doesn't really qualify as news. Suddenly... I'm angry. You know what, Diego? Fuck you. Would you feel this way if it wasn't just Afghans who were killed? If it were one of you? Omar sees me and approaches. He can see I'm upset. He raises the camera and snaps a photo. I draw my breath in sharply. Later, I'll ask him to delete the photo. I'm here to observe, not to be observed. Look, I say. We lost one too, Liz. Not Academy. U.S. military. Oh. Oh. Omar puts the camera up to take another shot of me and I give him the finger. He smiles and snaps the shot. Did you know him? He was 7th Group. Oh. Diego's old unit. You know you can't print anything until… I know. I was with him in Iraq and Afghanistan. We went way back. Oh. I'm so sorry. Yeah. A good guy. Great soldier. I think he'd have thought it was okay going out like this in combat, you know? There's more to be done, but Bob texts me. He wants us back at the office. Bob's got better contacts in the military anyway, so I figure, let him work it. On the way back, I look at the windshield stickers of the cars we pass. Fighter car, if you follow me, we'll be die. You are my heart always. One has an insignia of the presidential palace and former president Hamid Karzai. Another, the face of the Mujahideen Ahmad Shah Massoud. And then a Toyota Camry with, I hate girls. The next day, we find out the name of the 7th Group Operator, Master Sergeant Benjamin Kwan, Benji, to his friends. We don't get the names of the eight Afghan armed guards who also died, not that there'd be much point in hunting the names down. UNAMA claims zero civilian casualties for that attack, though they put the day's total at 368, 52 killed and 316 injured, with 43 of the dead and 312 of the injured civilians. Diego doesn't pick up the phone when I call him to get more detail. The Taliban claims the police academy attack and the camp integrity attack, but not the first bomb. Bob takes this to mean it was an accidental early detonation. A bomb headed for somewhere else, aimed to ruin other lives. Please leave your message. The day after, while we're still scrambling, there's a fourth bomb. This one at the entrance to the airport, killing and injuring 21 people, though by this point the numbers have blurred to just numbers. As I finish typing up the latest death toll, it occurs to me that I've been pumping up articles on how violent Kabul has become. This city that I've always told my family is safe, that I've always told them is the one place in Afghanistan they don't need to worry about me, and that if they're following the news at all, they're probably freaking out. So I call my mom. And my mom is concerned for me, and worried for me, like she always is. But it's pretty obvious she has no idea that Kabul has been exploding. She goes on about how Uncle Carrie's mind is a touch battier than it always was, and they're thinking about moving him in with my sister so that Linda can help look after him. And when I tell her about the bombing, she just says, That's why I don't like you over there, Lisette. All those bombs. And when I get angry and tell her this is different, this is new, that hundreds of people have been killed or injured in the past three days alone, and that doesn't happen here, she tells me as soothingly as she can, I know, my love. It's terrible. Because to her, to my mom, a woman who follows the news, who is smart, who is interested in foreign policy, who has a fucking daughter living in Kabul, this is certainly terrible, but also just what happens over there. It's not a surprise. And I realize that no matter how jaded I've become, I'll never be as jaded as the average American. I don't think you know what it feels like to have a child in a war zone. To be a parent is to always have a piece of your heart. I know, Mom. A piece of your heart traveling around outside your body. And I'm ashamed talking to my mother. Though I'm not sure why, just that I feel foolish and that I also have the absurd desire to crawl into my mother's lap. My very petite, 67-year-old mother's lap. Though at the same time, I'm so angry. Or maybe just feeling betrayed, and if I showed up at her house tomorrow, I know I'd sit in stony silence while she made me tea and talked about how America's falling apart and it's mostly George Soros' fault. But then, she asked me what she always asked me. When are you coming home? And I surprised myself with what I realize is an honest answer. Soon.
1: The story you just heard are two chapters from Missionaries, Phil Cly's debut novel. If you Google it, you'll find out that Missionaries was actually written by a National Book Award winning author and Iraq war veteran. Phil's real good at examining the globalization of violence through the interlocking stories of four characters and the conflicts that define their lives. He's also super swell to work with. We had a really fun time actually putting this episode together. Uh, Tim Carplus, he helped by creating some really deep scores. I did the arrangement with sound effects, and then I passed those files off to Tim, and he did the mixing. So it just really came together in such this harmonious way. And we couldn't have done this without the help of Phil's performance and Tim's engineering. Uh, we would also like to thank Liz Calamari at Penguin Press and Jeff Umbro of the Glomerate. Jeff is our executive producer. Uh, he does a lot for the show. Uh, he also does a lot of work that I just can't do myself. And I'm really grateful to know him as a professional and as a friend. You know, it's uh, we've we've all been affected uh, this year in a really deep way. Uh, it hasn't been easy, um, and sometimes my gut instinct is to not address it and just keep moving forward and, and that you know not let it shake me. But you know that's because I still believe in people. I believe in the stories they tell, and I believe in our audience who wants to listen to it. I have really enjoyed hearing from some of you, you know, reminding that, you know, reminding us that our show matters, that these stories matter because they aren't just easy stories to tell. Most of what you hear on the show is nonfiction or it's fiction inspired from nonfiction, you know, real events. It's why the show can feel intense sometimes or the music can feel kind of overbearing. It's why this show Isn't for everyone, but it's also why it's definitely for those who enjoy getting lost in a story. Getting so lost that they want to disappear and imagine and escape for just a little while because I still believe in escapism. I believe in a good sleep. I believe in getting the full eight hours or whatever that means to you because I only sleep two or three hours a night on average, and that's just how it's kind of always been for me while I'm moving through trauma (laughs) because my dad dying in July was a real gut punch Uh, we had half the season produced still another five episodes to go we were on a good schedule but anytime I feel the effects of death it ripples outward within me it happened last year it's happening it happened twice last year and it's happening again because that's what happens as you get older (laughs) <laughs> this stuff just comes at you and you do not know how to react to it, especially if it's new or even if it's not new, even if it's happened again, you're like, this is happening again. I have to now reprocess this again. You know, a lot of people are, you know, familiar with calling this, um, complex PTSD. You know, think of what Phil Cly is writing about in his story in this episode and what he's going through with, um... You know, uh, being a journalist in that area, right? Like, think of what that character is going through and think about how that trauma, you know, being subjected to it over and over again, the sound of those bombs. You know, that's why, that is why we make the show because it is about trying to bring to life this thing that you do get to experience it when you read the book itself, which is definitely why, by the way, I'm going to plug a little bit. You really super have to go get Phil Clyde's book, Missionaries, because it is so good. And you can tell it in his performance, too. That is him reading his story, you know, and we are just trying to bring it to life a little bit. Um, Anyway, the point is, is when death happens, it ripples you know outward within me and I've had enough breakdowns and I've processed them for a lifetime and I'm okay I'm okay because I have writing it was a gift from my father just as the knowledge of psychology and therapy were gifts from my mother um you know in in so uh do you want to know what's happening next well a third season of Storybound for sure uh also a fourth season of Storybound uh, bonus episodes in between, still produced by Lit Hub Radio, still produced by the Poglomerate, still hosted by me, Sleepy Voice, Jude Brewer. And before I say goodbye, because I won't be saying hello again for a few weeks, I wanted to say thank you to the listeners who have been reaching out via Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, my own website. It's um, super fun to read what you write and write what you feel connected with. And I'm still learning how to be a part of this, too. Uh, I'm learning how to listen to you. I'm learning how to listen to you know, more to the stories. It is the most frustrating part that I always want to make the show more involved and more experimental. And I hope you stick around for the ride because we have some really awesome authors coming up this next season. We have some cool bonus episodes that I think you'll really dig. And we're doing a lot more music. Maybe some names you recognize, maybe mostly names you've never heard of. And that is the fun of it because it is all about discovery for me, discovery for you. And that is what brings us together. This is why we need stories, and it is how we survive. So, also, go check out Shane Milner's comics. He works super hard at them, man. Shane Milner is the dude. You know, he's super talented. Uh, if you follow us on Instagram at StoryboundPod, you're going to get to see some comics from season one that you might have missed. Uh these comics in season 1 they're all like in black and white, super rad looking and then you'll get to see comics from season 2 which are now in full color. Blows my mind. I don't even get to see some of them until the day of and it is a fun surprise for me, you know, especially after reading the story. So, if you enjoy a story, go find the comic. Again, that is Storybound at @storyboundpod on Instagram. Uh, you can subscribe to us, follow us, share it around on your stories, share it with your friends. And if you want to send us a message, it would be super cool to hear your thoughts about the show, or if you have any cool ideas, authors you'd want to hear tell a story, maybe even if they're not an author, maybe they're just really cool and really you know do really cool stuff. Find us on Instagram, that is at StoryboundPod. We are also on Twitter, and if you'd rather if you you know rather go there, you can even write me a message on Twitter. My handle is at Jude Brewery. Yep, that is Brewer with a Y. J-U-D-E-B-R-E-W-E-R-Y. So write me a little story, tell me what's going on in your book, and be kind with yourselves. Stick around for Season 3 of Storybound. Okay sleepy voice jude brewer sleepy voice jude brewer sleepy voice jude brewer sleepy voice jude brewer stick around for th- season 3 of storybound sleepy voice jude brewer season 3 of storybound sleepy voice jude brewer season 3 sleepy of storybound sleepy, Story sleepy voice Story jude, jude brewer season 3 of season 3 of season 3 of storybound Season 3 of season 3 of season 3 of Storybound. Season 3 of season 3 of season 3 of Storybound. Always want to make the show more experimental. 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 More 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 experimental. More 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 experimental. Season 4 of season of season experimental more of Storybound. Season more 3 more three more of more, season, three, uh, of more, season more, 3 more, more, uh, more storybound
0: The Pod A Sonic Universe